0: Rock'em, Sock'em Robots, right? It's a ton of fun. Um, and it will be down here for those of you who wanna play uh, after the service. Um, here's the deal. This, this, the way this is played, if you're not familiar with it, is you pick your robot, you've got a punch here, a punch here, and your goal is to punch the head of the other robot until it lifts up and then you, you're the winner, right? Because that's considered a knockout. That's considered a, a, a robot down for the count. Um, It's great in a game, right, to have a winner and a loser, and you just push some buttons. But life doesn't work that way, does it, right? Especially with the topics that we're going to be talking about today, because today we're going to be talking about conflict and how do we engage in conflict biblically. And and for some of us, don't we wish conflict was just as easy as this? right, that, that you would grab a handle, push a button, and keep pushing those buttons and moving around until somebody's head flies off, and then you know who the winner, and you know who the loser is, right? Wouldn't that be fun? Um, uh, but, but here's what we're going to see today. And, and, and I think we see this theme all throughout scripture. And even though that would be the easy way to deal with conflict, I think what we see as a theme through scripture, particularly in talking about conflict is, is this, is that the easy way may not be the biblical way. The easy way may not be the biblical way. Because you see today, as we talk about conflict, Let's be honest, most of us have an easy way that we deal with conflict. Now, some people in this room actually love this idea of conflict, right? Like you love jumping in the ring and taking swings at conflict until somebody's head comes off. You don't even care if it's your head that comes off. You love conflict and you love engaging with conflict. There's not an argument you don't like. You can think quick on your feet. You love conflict conflict. But there's a lot of us in this room, I would put myself in this camp, that we, our easy way in dealing with conflict is to not step in the ring at all, right? We don't particularly like conflict because when we step in the ring, oftentimes we're not sure if what we're saying even makes sense. We're not sure what to say. And we get out of the ring thinking, was that helpful at all? Was that worth getting in the ring for? You see, here's why this is important. No matter what your easy way is, it's important that we know how to conflict in a biblical way. And here's why. Because we are a church. Right? Here's what this means. This means as a church, we, as a church, now not this doesn't apply to everybody in this room because I know some people in this room today are here because somebody brought you, you're here because you just wanna check it out, Uh, you're here for for various reasons. When I say church, what I'm meaning is people who have said yes to Jesus, that they have placed their faith in Jesus as their savior, that they realize that, that he is the reason, that they have this good and right relationship with God, not their own behavior, nor is their bad behavior deterrent and that a deterrent in that relationship if that's you, if you're a person who had said yes to Jesus, you're part of the church and here's what that means. That means you are growing in your understanding of what a relationship with God looks like. That means when you said yes to Jesus, you were given a spiritual gift or multiple spiritual gifts for the purpose of us, the church, that that spiritual gift was given so that you can build the church up. It also means that you're learning how to serve one another. You're learning how to serve your family, your spouse, your friends, your co-workers. And since we're all learning, it also means that we're all going to make mistakes as as we learning That sometimes we're going to experience success and sometimes we're going to experience failures. That sometimes I'm going to do what God asked me to do and sometimes I'm going to sin and that sin is going to be against you. And you're going to sin and that sin is going to be against me. That sin is going to be against your spouse, against your friends, against your co-workers. You see, we're going to experience success, but we're also going to experience failures. and, and, And if that's true, that means we're gonna have conflict. As a matter of fact, I would say this, that as a church, as a church, we will always have conflict. Until Jesus returns or until we're in heaven, conflict is gonna be one of the constants of church. Do you know why? Because I'm not perfect and you're not perfect. And so we're gonna conflict. Now, how many of you, How many of you, when I say conflict, that sounds like a bad word, right? Does conflict feel like a bad word? All right, I was reading this book years ago, and it's a great book. I don't even think they've updated it. Uh, It's called Caring Enough to Confront. It was written in the early 70s. The book is worth the read just for the hippie illustrations in it. Right, like, like he's a pastor and he was pastoring this young, growing church and realized that, that conflict wasn't being handled right in his church. And so he's just talking about the world that he knew at that point. And it's this great book. But here's what he says about conflict. He says conflict is natural, which means this, it's gonna always happen. That conflict is neutral, which means it's not good or bad, it just is. But then he says this, conflict is natural, conflict is neutral, and it can be beneficial. It is beneficial, which means something good can come out of it, which is why it's important to understand the biblical view of conflict, because that's when something good comes out of it. Because see, we're always going to be having conflict. We're always going to be growing. We're always going to be sinning against each other. We're always going to be making mistakes. We're always going to be failing. And so the question that we're going to see today is this. How do we deal with conflict in a biblical way? Not our easy way. Not the way that, that we're naturally inclined to. Because our easy way may not be the biblical way. But how do we deal with conflict in a biblical way? Now, here's what I love about this. This isn't just for us in the church, right? Because you have conflict in relationships outside the church. You have conflict in your marriage. You have conflict with people at work. You have conflict with your friends. At least if they're friends worth keeping, you have conflict with them, right? You have conflict everywhere. What we're going to see today is just some biblical principles about conflict that will not only allow you to glorify God as you go through conflicts, but get this, because this sounds crazy to people like me. who don't even like getting in the ring. You can actually experience joy as you're going through conflict. Doesn't that sound crazy? But you can experience joy as you go through conflict. Now, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. So, if you have your Bibles, you can open to chapter 4. We're going to cover a whole two verses today, verse 2 and verse 3, because Paul gave it some attention. I want to give conflict some attention. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in front of you. In that Bible, it's on page 817. Or, like uh, Carol said, we're in the Bible app. You can uh, download that, click on events, and click on Fellowship Asheville, and everything's there. Now, we're almost done in our series going through Philippians called Eclipse. And if you're new today, Uh, Philippians is a letter written by a guy named Paul uh, who happens to be in jail at the time because of his faith. And he's writing to a church in Philippi. And the people that lived in Philippi are called Philippians, which is why the letter is called Philippians. The book is called Philippians. And, And one of the themes that Paul talks about over and over and over, which is very ironic considering his circumstances and even the circumstance of the Philippian church, is he goes on and on and on about joy to rejoice in the Lord, to experience this joy of the Lord. It's the theme in this book. But we're calling this series Eclipse because here's what happens. It's what, I believe it's what happened to the church in Philippi. It's what happens to us is we let these little things get in the way of the joy of the Lord, fully available to us all the time. And like an eclipse, an eclipse is when something very small, like the moon, covers the light of something really big, like the sun. And when you look at the size of the moon, which would be about the size of my fist, compared to the size of the sun, which would be about the size of that entire back wall, it doesn't make any sense that something this small can dim the light of something that big, except for perspective. You see, if you're in the shadow of the moon during an eclipse, you experience a full eclipse. If you change your perspective, you change what you see. Paul is asking this Philippian church to change their perspective. I, as your pastor, am am going through this book, changing my perspective and asking you to change your perspective too. And today, what we're going to see is how we see conflict could be one of those things that eclipses the joy fully available to us in the Lord. Well, let's look at verse 2. Uh, so, chapter 4, verse 2, in the very first part, he says, I entreat Yoda, Yoda, I don't know how you say your name, and I entreat another name that I don't know how to say, since maybe? I don't know. Here's, here, here's, why can't it be Mary and Betty? That's my question. Um, uh, but, but here's the deal with these two ladies. Uh, their names are obviously Greek, so they lived in Philippi. They, they weren't of Jewish heritage. They, they were part of the church. Uh, they had most likely said yes to Jesus at some point. There's no reason to think that they're not believers, that they are believers. And yet, all we know about them is their name, and we know about them that they are in conflict. We don't know what the conflict is. And it's important for us to know that. We have no idea what they're conflicting over. But we do know this, that whatever their disagreement is, it is big enough and it is taking long enough and it has a big enough impact that Paul wanted to include instruction to them in this letter, right? So imagine what it's like to be called out by Paul. Right, as he's writing this letter to the Philippian church, and oftentimes what they would do is somebody would stand up and read the letter to the congregation. You know, and imagine you're one of these two ladies sitting out there and he gets to this part, the reader or she gets to this part. And all of a sudden it's Paul pointing to you and the person probably sitting across the room from you that it's time to get along. Now that's intense. And here we see this first principle, too, of conflict. Notice what he says to them. He entreats both of them. He doesn't entreat one person and implore the other, right? He doesn't say one person, hey, if it's up to you, go ahead and get along. The other person, like, seriously, it's time. He treats them both the same. And here's why he does this, I think. It's our first kind of principle of what biblical conflict looks like. In biblical conflict, we are on the same side, right? Paul's not taking side. He's not taking one side over the other. He's specifically using the same words for both of them because we are on the same side. It doesn't matter what the conflict is about. In the church, we are on the same side. Right, in your marriage, you are on the same side. There are no two sides. You know, the easy way in church and marriage, even in friendships and those relationships where Jesus is the center of, sometimes when conflicts happen, the easy way is to say, I'm gonna be the blue robot, you're gonna be the red robot, and let's just start taking swings until somebody's head comes off, right? Sometimes that feels like the easy way. If I just take sides... It'll be better. There'll be a winner and there'll be a loser. Somebody's head is going to get knocked off. But at least we'll know who's right and who's wrong. But see, that's not the goal of biblical conflict. Not like this biblical conflict. You see, what we're going to see next is the goal of biblical conflict. Because look, look at what he says in verse 2. He says he wants these two ladies to agree in the Lord to agree in the Lord Now this this term is interesting Because what does Paul mean when he says, agree in the Lord? Like you could read this and say, okay, so for us to settle this disagreement, we have to both answer C to whatever question it is. We have to both answer the same way to the same question and that's agreeing in the Lord. We have to to agree in our disagreements. We have to put our disagreements behind and say, say, okay, for us to move forward, we've gotta be saying the same thing. I don't think this is what Paul's talking about here. And and what's interesting about this phrase, agree in the Lord, we don't really know what Paul's talking about here, right? Because I'm going to show you some different Bible translations of this phrase, and we can see a theme coming from it. But what's interesting, a little bit about translations, your, your Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew, your New Testament was written primarily in Greek, And what translators do is they go back to the most original documents that they can find of of these books that we call our Bible, of these letters, and they translate it into their language that they want to produce the Bible in. And so so for this passage, they went back to to as close as they could find the manuscript that Paul wrote, and they looked at this phrase that Paul wrote. And Paul was tricky because he would take words sometimes and put them together and create a new word. Right, And we do it all the time. We, we do it with words that we use and slang that we use, and Paul was a pro at that. And so these translators look at this word, and they're like, there is no English word for what Paul says. There's no direct translation. And so, so what these translators do is they try and do their very best to capture the heart of what Paul is saying. And so this is what some of the translations say about agreeing the Lord. It says to be of the same mind in the Lord. It says, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I like this one to live in harmony in the Lord, is what one translation says. And then you've got the message. Right, And the message isn't a translation, it's a paraphrase. And what this translator did is they looked at the original language and they said, doing a word-for-word translation sometimes still doesn't make sense. So they would capture the heart of what was in the original language and put it in common terms. And so the message says this about these two ladies, that that this idea of agreeing in the Lord means to iron out your differences and make up. God uh, God doesn't want his children holding a grudge. Right, and so so, what does this mean to agree in the Lord? It's this, it's this interesting term because we aren't exactly sure, but we can capture a sense of what Paul means here. And I think we can do that with, with clarity, that we can capture the idea, because Paul is asking these women to end the conflict and move forward. He's asking them and telling them that it's time to put the disagreement behind you and to move forward. That he wants them to come to an understanding of the other person's position and then move forward. And so it's important that we understand this, that that biblical conflict, the goal isn't a winner and a loser, right? In biblical conflict, the goal is unity. In biblical conflict, we move forward in unity. Right? In biblical conflict, we move forward in unity. Now, this doesn't mean conformity. Right, These two ladies don't have to have the same opinion about everything. And we know this. The church isn't full of people that think the exact same way about every same thing. Right? If I were to take this room and say Democrats on one side, Libertarians on one side, and, and Republicans on, on, in, in one area, like, like we would separate and we would move around. Why? Because we have different opinions. We don't have to agree on everything to be unified. As a matter of fact, one of the translations used the word harmony. Now, I love that word because, because harmony, first of all, keep in mind, I am not a music person. And the way I understand harmony is basically how the dictionary defines it and how I hear it. I asked Cam, I texted Cam yesterday. I was like, hey, I have this part about harmony in my message and I don't really know if what I'm saying is true. Can you describe it for me? I couldn't understand what he said in the text. It had something to do with melody and harmony and notes and keys. And all all I know about harmony is this, is, is that you have different people singing the same thing in a slightly different way, and it is beautiful, right? If you had everybody singing the same thing the same way, you know what that's called? Boring. I'm sure there's a musical term for it, but like I said, I'm not the music guy, so I don't know what it is. But harmony is beautiful. And so this idea of of agreeing with one another and moving forward in unity is about harmony. Harmony. Now, I do wanna address this because I wanna be clear what we know their disagreement wasn't about because we've seen Paul handle this before. Their disagreement wasn't about the gospel, right? One person wasn't saying the gospel is this and another person saying the gospel is that because in multiple letters, Paul is very clear that if you take the gospel and add anything else to it, it's not the gospel anymore. And if that's what these ladies were disagreeing about, he would say that. So it's not that. We also know that this disagreement isn't about sin, that neither one of these ladies are in sin because the Bible's very clear, and Paul even writes in one of his books in Galatians how to deal with people who are are struggling with sin and not confessing sin and not repeating sin. And he says, you address that head on, you deal with it gently. Jesus talked about sin. And he said, if someone is caught in sin and someone is engaged in sin, in Matthew 18, I think it's verse 15 through 17, he says, you go to them one-on-one and the implication is you go with your Bible open and you sit there and you go, hey, what you're doing goes against what Jesus said to do. And you give them an opportunity to see what they're doing is sin and to confess and, and turn away from it. And then if they don't, then, then Jesus said, then bring somebody else with you and sit down with them and show them their sin. And if they don't listen then and, and they still don't confess and they don't turn away from it, then, then Jesus said, then take them to the church now, depending on their level of leadership, that probably depends, at least for us, in practical applications, if it's their, their growth group or if it is the entire church, if they're a leader within the church, it just depends. But, it, but Jesus is saying, broaden those voices for this person so that they hear what they're doing to sin. And then the final step, the final step is to let them go and, and live out that sin because they're convinced that that sin is making promises that it can keep. But y'all know this, right? Y'all know that sin always makes promises that it can't keep. That's what sin does. And the goal of Matthew 18, the goal of, of, of dealing with someone who's, who's who's consistently and actively engaged in sin, the, sometimes that's called church discipline. It's not about discipline, it's about restoration. Because what you want them to do is you want them to understand that Jesus is the only one who can keep the who can, who can keep the promises that he makes, that the sin they're engaging in can't. And if you've ever been in that type of relationship, you know how much it breaks your heart for them to think that that sin is going to answer the questions that they have. But you get to a point where you have to just let them go and let them fully engage in that sin. Because in time, as a follower of Jesus, they will understand that that sin can't keep the promises that it makes. And the hope, it's what Paul says in Galatians, the hope is that you're still there restoring them gently so that when they realize that, you're there and you can point them back to Jesus. But with these ladies, that's not the case. With these ladies, it's not that kind of of, disagreement that they're having. And for them, I think Paul would have another verse for them because for them, I think he would he'd point them to Proverbs nineteen eleven, that good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Because we know this isn't about heresy. We know this isn't about sin. We know it's just a disagreement. And Paul is telling them it is time to overlook it. It is time to move forward in biblical unity It's time to understand where the other person is coming from, but move forward. It's time to overlook the expense and move forward. It's time to put it behind you. But here's what else Paul knows. Sometimes that's really hard to do. Sometimes it's really hard to put a disagreement behind you. And this is why Paul says this. In verse 3, he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Now, here's what's interesting Paul doesn't mind calling these two ladies out by name, but this true companion he leaves nameless. Now, it could be because the way this letter was delivered to the Philippians is is a guy took it from Paul in Rome to the Philippian church and read it out loud to them. And so it could be that that this guy knows who the true companion is, so it didn't need to be be mentioned. But but here's what's also true about the the Bible that you hold in your hands today. Yes, Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, but all Scripture is God-breathed is what Paul says about Scripture, which means the Holy Spirit was giving, words, the, giving Paul the words to write down. And so e- even though Paul may have been thinking about these two women and them agreeing and moving forward and dealing with their conflict in a biblical way, the Holy Spirit had a bigger picture than that. Because the Holy Spirit wasn't just thinking about this church in Philippi. The Holy Spirit was thinking about us in Asheville, North Carolina. The Holy Spirit was thinking about centuries of churches gathered together where there were conflicts in the congregation. The Spirit of God was thinking about you as being part of a church. You see, and this is our next truth about biblical conflict and how to engage in biblical conflict well, and it's this. In biblical conflict, we help each other. Right? Because if you're like me, the tendency is if you don't want to involve in, be involved in conflict, you certainly don't want to be involved in somebody else's conflict. And if you can just kind of ignore them and push them to the back of the church, eventually it'll work itself out. Paul's showing us right here. That approach doesn't actually work. You see, both parties have to be willing to move beyond the conflict. If not, they're, they're not in it together. But his point is is that biblical conflict is actually a church issue, not an individual issue. That if somebody in the church is in conflict, or if a marriage is in conflict, or if a friendship is in conflict, it isn't an issue that's just between them. It's not a them issue, it's an us issue. So here's here's why I think uh, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, left this name out and just calls him the true companion or her the true companion. is because you could insert your name there. Because what Paul's doing is he's asking the church to help those who are in conflict. You know, let me, let me ask you this. And I do want you to raise your hand on this. I don't want you to point any fingers, but I want you to raise your hand, right? How many of you know somebody who's in conflict today? All right, like I said, no of fingers, good job. Nobody pointed, just hands raised, great. You see, what Paul is saying is that if you raised your hand and you know somebody's in conflict, you actually have a role in that conflict. You see, your job is to help them understand each other. Your job is to help them overlook offenses. Your job is to help them move forward in that conflict and to move forward together in unity. Your job isn't to take sides because remember, how many sides are there in biblical conflict? One, there's one side, and we're all on it. Your job isn't to take sides. Your job isn't to let sin continue, right? God, Jesus laid out a plan for that. Paul speaks of that. We know that if there's sin, that, that it needs to be dealt with, right? And maybe you can help with that. You certainly don't wanna let sin continue because there's a great psychological term for that. It's called enablement. When we enable people, that means we're allowing sin to continue, right? That's not your job. Your job is to help them understand, to help them overlook offenses, and to help them move forward. And so what does this look like for you? Because how many hear me say that right now, and you're like, oh, there's no way. You don't know the conflict that I was thinking of when I raised my hand. Surely you don't want me to meddle into that right? Here's what it looks like for you. Your first response, and maybe your only response involved in this conflict, or your biggest response in this conflict is to pray. Because let me tell you what Satan wants to do. Satan wants to keep people in conflict. He wants to keep people divided. And the best weapon that we have against Satan is prayer. And you can pray for that conflict to be resolved in unity. You can pray for that that conflict to be able to move forward together in humility. You can also not let gossip and bitterness take root, right? Because here's the truth of the matter. Some of you may know about the conflict that you raised your hand about is because you're the listening ear to one of those people in the conflict. Now that's gonna happen. Sometimes we need people to hear what's going on in our heads and our hearts. But if you're the true companion, right? If you're the helper in this situation, your job is to not let that turn into gossip. And here's what that looked like. Gossip is talking about somebody instead of talking to somebody. That's the simplest definition of gossip. And when somebody tells you about somebody and tells you about a conflict they're involved in, you have this great opportunity to say, wow, thank you so much for telling me that stuff and for trusting me with this stuff. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna help you talk to this person about it. Because now my job is to help this, this conflict move forward together in unity. And so what can I do to help you talk to this person? Do you, want, do you want me to sit in there with you as you talk to this person? Do you want me to pray for you? Do you want me to call you on Tuesday and make sure that you lined up a time to talk to them? Or do you want me to call them on Tuesday and tell them that you're gonna call them and talk to them? How can I help you? Because see, if you don't do that, where gossip lives, bitterness grows. And if, and if that gossip is allowed to fester, it just turns into bitterness. And bitterness builds these walls that makes unity very, very hard. So maybe your job is to pray. Maybe your job is to not let gossip and bitterness take root. Maybe your job is to sit down with them to make sure they understand each other and to encourage them to move forward and put the disagreement behind them. The the fact is, I don't know what your role is for all of you who raised your hand, but I do know this. If you know of a conflict, you can help the conflict. That's what I know. Through prayer prayer they not letting gossip and bitterness take root or maybe even sitting down with them. So if you just raised your hands, I'm sorry to say, you have a role in that conflict. Well, let's look at verse 3 because here's what's at stake. Look at the rest of verse 3. It says, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. You see, here's what's at stake with unity, and here's what is ruined by disunity is that as a church, God has given us a very clear mission that we are to make disciples that make disciples. And here at Fellowship, what that looks like is we we try and create these gospel-centered environments where change is possible. We try and create a gospel-centered community, community that is centered on the fact that Jesus died for us and, and that his death and resurrection paved the way for us to have a good, right, and intimate relationship with the God who made us and the God who loves us, and that we can't contrive that relationship on our own, that it is only Jesus who provides that. And we let that filter through everything that we do as a church. That's being a gospel-centered, community, but here's what that means. if that is true, that means that we are always in this constant state of change. because the, the the faithful Christian you are today will look different than the faithful Christian you are a year from now or five years from now. Our hope is that you're walking in faith and in trust deeper, a year from now than you are today, and that you can look back on your life a year ago and you're thinking, no, I'm walking in more faith and trust today than I was a year ago. That's what we hope happens. That can be derailed in an instant by disunity. That's what's at stake here. It's what's at stake there. You see, in biblical conflict, we stay on mission together. We take the gospel deeper into us, and we take the gospel wider into our community. And can I tell you something that I've seen in too many churches too many times? And here's what's amazing about this. Some of you are going to laugh because you think I'm kidding, but some of you have experienced it, and you're going to shake your head, because I have seen people leave churches, and I have seen churches split over the color of the carpet in the sanctuary, right? Ridiculous, but true. This is what's at stake, church. If we allow disunity and we allow conflict to just go unresolved, we start griping about the silliest things. Because let me tell you, bored Christians argue over silly, stupid things. And y'all, stupid's a bad word in our house, so I I just got all up there. All right, if Luke was in here, he would be correcting me. But bored Christians do conflict over the silliest things. And notice the verb tense that Paul uses about these women is past tense. He said they have labored with him. They have labored with Clement. We're not sure if they still are or not. This disagreement may have derailed them. And disagreements may derail you or may derail those in conflict. On the other hand, Jesus' followers who are stepping out in faith in the mission of the church and moving the church forward, they're the ones who find it really easy to overlook an offense. Let me tell you what happened last week because this, so, this is so fun. You know, last week we launched Fellowship Weaverville, right? So exciting. We have a team of about 80 that are on the launch team. They've been training and meeting together and praying and it was like, it was like you put six months into one Sunday, right? And they put out 150 chairs <clears throat> thinking that was by faith. They had 170 people show up for their first service, which means they had to pull. Yeah, it's exciting, isn't it? They had to pull more chairs out. You know what was happening after that service? Nobody was complaining about little things as if they were big things. Yes, there was stuff that needed to be tweaked, like maybe putting out more chairs next time, stuff like that, but nobody was making a big deal out of it. Why? Because they were on mission together and they weren't bored. They got to see what God was doing and be excited about it. And when you're in that place, it's easy to overlook an offense because you've got bigger things to worry about than the color of a car, of carpet or the fact that, that not enough chairs were out or anything like that. You see, when you're on mission with God, you don't complain about little things like they're big things because in biblical conflict, we stay on mission together and y'all, that is what's at stake here. You see, when we take the easy road, instead of the biblical road and work through whatever disagreements we have, the mission of the church is at stake. And so church, as your pastor, I'm telling you, let's not get bored. Right? One of the reasons, and really the main reason that we even thought about church planting, that we even prayed about church planting, one of the, the reasons that God gave us is that we realized that a, as a church of about 500 people, it's easy to get bored. It's easy to think somebody else is going to do this. They don't need me to do this. Somebody else is going to do it. And so I can just come here and sit here and then, and then just get bored. But what we know is when you come into a, a worship center where there's space, you realize, wow, they they actually need me here. I have a place here. And when you realize that, you realize that God has actually gifted you in a certain way that we do need you. It's not just your, your presence in the room that we need, but we need how God has gifted you in this place. Because the scripture says that God has given you a spiritual gift and that gift is for the building up of the church. You see, that's what we need in you. And for some, of you, uh, for some of you, that could look very, very different. For some of you, uh, these opportunities to connect in the church drive you. And so you wanna greet, you wanna do worship, you wanna, you wanna do the tech stuff, you wanna work with kids, you wanna make Sunday this, this great experience. For some of you, it's what's happening outside the church walls that motivates you. And, and you know, at Oakley, we have got people there at this elementary school right across the street, we have got people there every Friday, Packing food and and distributing food so that kids can have food when they go home on the weekends because they don't have enough at home. We have got tutors that are sitting with kids. We have even got lunch buddies that go there the same day every week just to sit in the cafeteria around these kids and just be a presence of Jesus in that lunchroom. And let me tell you, the first like four or five times you do it, it is the most awkward experience of your life. But that changes. That changes. Suddenly, instead of this weirdo sitting in the cafeteria, you become their friend. And they start looking forward to you being there so that if you're not, they're asking where where you were. We've got that going on. We've got women uh, who are working in the jail system and who are volunteering in the jail system leading Bible studies there. You can get plugged in with that. We've got a guy who is leading a Bible study for firemen in Fairview. Because their schedules, they can't get to church on a regular basis, so he goes to them. You can help out there. Maybe God has given you an idea of of, of how he's gifted you and how you can pour out into others. Listen, we want you to be on mission with God. We want you to be on mission with the church. There's a connect card in front of you. If you check that box and interested in knowing more, interested in serving and write down what it is, somebody will contact you and help. I don't want you bored in your faith. Because this sounds so selfish, but I'm gonna go ahead and say it. When you're not bored, you actually save me a whole lot of time. Right? You see, church, I want you on mission. And so I wanna help you do that any way I can. But I also want you to understand, maybe for you, your next step isn't to step into an area of service, isn't to step into an area where where you're gifted because you're already doing that. Maybe the next step for you today is to help somebody in conflict, the person that you raised your hand about. Maybe your next step is to pray for them. Maybe your next step is to meet with them. Maybe your next step is to help in some way. If it is, then please do that. Or maybe your next step today is, is the step that, that I talked about earlier. And, and maybe you said, okay, this isn't for me. I'm not a Jesus follower. Maybe that is your next step. Now, I know you're thinking, why do I want to step into an organization that is full of conflict? I don't know. Um, but I do know the whole point of this message is because the gospel that we believe allows us to actually experience joy in that conflict. And if Jesus can, can walk with you in conflict and give you joy, he is worth walking through life with. And so maybe for you, that next step is saying yes to Jesus and realizing that there is a God who loves you and who made you and, and wants desperately to have a relationship with you. And Jesus is the way to that God. Jesus is a way to that relationship. And so maybe that's your next step. But whatever your next step is, church, today, I ask you to take it. Let's pray.